Thank you, Judy. What a great reminder of where our power source is. You have probably heard me say that for a time in my ministry, uh, I spent a decade in, uh, in the Hawaiian Islands. And during that decade, a, a story filtered up from Micronesia. And I'll try to relay the story as it was shared with me. Two little islands in Micronesia, the island of Nurabande, where Johnny Lingo lived, and the island of Kinawata, where Sarita Karu lived. They met as grade school children. It was kind of rare for uh, children, at least, to go back and forth between the little islands of Micronesia. Uh, but Johnny's uh, grade school teacher put together a trip for them that they might meet and enjoy a culture of a different island. So they went the distance to Kinavata, and there Johnny was smitten with Sarita and said in his mind, I'm going to marry her someday. In his grade school mind, he was just struck by this young lady who was taller than all the rest in the class and head and shoulders over him, but he was in awe of her. Well, the years then took their lives two different directions. Johnny, from the time of his grade school, was an entrepreneur. Everything he did was to provide action of some kind. He sold little trinkets to the tourists. Oh, the little trinkets became a little stand then down by the beach, and tourists came flocking, and his reputation grew. Pretty soon, he was mailing these trinkets to friends on the uh, U.S. mainland, and he had a thriving business. Pretty soon, the mail order business turned into an export-import business. And by his mid-20s, Johnny was the most wealthy young man on his island. But he had not forgotten his childhood vow. And so he sent word to Kinavata, to Sam Carew, Sarita's father, saying, I would like to meet with you to negotiate on the bride price. Now, in their culture, the dowry uh, was, it was a rural culture. The dowry was paid in livestock, usually cows. And uh, Sarita's life, let me tell you what happened to her as Johnny was in this whole success mode. She was kind of sliding the other direction. Because of her unusual height, all of her peers were making fun of her and teasing her. And that stress from her peer group had just beaten her down. And now she was hunched-shouldered all the time and always looking down and didn't want to have anything to do with other people. And her life had really gone a different direction. So Sam was thinking about the dowry. <laughs> in their culture, the most talented and beautiful uh, received maybe four or five cows. Uh, and so Sam said, I'm going to plan it this way. I'm going to ask for three cows until I negotiate, until I'm sure I'll maybe get two or one. So these two people came together. And so Sam had his strategy set. He was ready to uh, meet with Johnny Lingo, this entrepreneur from Nurabande. And then when he got there, the negotiations were very short and sweet. Johnny opened the meeting and said, Sam Carew, father of Sarita, I offer eight cows for your daughter in marriage. And after Sam picked his jaw up off the floor and cleared his throat, he said, oh, well, very well, I accept your offer. <laughs> and they were married. Five months after the wedding, 
Johnny was hosting a, uh, a guest from the United States, a business partner that he had, and the guest had been to the Isle of Kinavata first, and Johnny knew that, and so he said, what do they say about me on that island? And the guest was a little taken back, but he told what he had heard and uh, said, they'd laugh at you. They say you were bested by their worst businessman, just a local farmer, and you're supposed to be this hotshot businessman, and yet he got the best of the deal. And so they were interrupted. Uh, a lady came into the room and, and sh sh changed the fresh flowers in the vase and, and then quietly left. And the, uh, the business guest was stunned. She was the most striking woman he had ever seen, tall and poised with a sparkle in her eyes. And Johnny said, that's my wife, Sarita. <laughs> and the guest said, but she's, she's beautiful. That's not how they described her. They said you were cheated. And so Johnny says, do you think eight cows was too high a price? <laughs> no, but what changed her? And this was Johnny's response. Do you ever think what it must seem like to a woman to know that her husband has settled on the lowest price possible for marriage? When women talk and they boast about what their husbands paid for them, and when some are saying four or five, think of how it must hurt when they say one or two cows. <laughs> In Kinavata, Sarita believed she was worth nothing. Now she knows she's worth more than any other woman in all of our islands. And that thought brought out the best in her. She saw herself as I saw her, beautiful and of infinite worth. So why on the first Sunday of the year, this Epiphany Sunday, start with a story from the South Pacific? Because I want us to see ourselves as God sees us. I want to see myself as God sees me. I want you to see yourself as God sees you. Because all of our self-esteem, all of our worth is there at the cross. All of our worth is there at incarnation, that God would come among us to lift us up. And so we go back to incarnation where we've been for this last month, the grand miracle, the central event in the history of the earth. For through the incarnation, comes everything else Christ did. His life, his death, his resurrection, his ascension, his coming again, all related to the willingness that God would become man and live for a while among us. I want us to come this morning back to John chapter 1, where I've led us in these past couple of months as we looked at the presence of God. We looked at, at his creative presence. All things were made through him, and that presence is revealed in his creation, but beyond creation, it's his revealed presence. We don't somehow figure it out. He shows himself to us. He reveals himself in Christ. We looked at how it's the life-giving presence, how it is the redemptive presence that changes us. But to be this presence of incarnation, God becoming man, in that first chapter, verse 14, was the verse that was so radical in the first century. The word became flesh and lived for a while among us, and we have seen his glory, the glory of the one and only Son, who came from the Father, 
full of grace and truth. We've had a few centuries to get used to that, but in the first century, it was this incredible heresy. The word became flesh, the logos. There's no direct translation, really, in the Greek, but they had argued for 800 years in Greek philosophy what the logos was about. Early philosophers said, well, it's, it's the earth. It's everything we can see, feel, and touch. It is the, the physical world around us. Well, they argued about that for a century or two, and then somebody said, well, it, no, the, the real reality is water, because water gives life to the earth, and that's where we find our sustenance. They kicked that one around for a while, and then somebody suggested fire. That's how we were able to be civilized, that we could warm ourselves and cook for ourselves and light our homes with fire. And then Heraclitus came on the scene, 500 BC, and said, he took it out of the physical realm and into the metaphysical realm. He says, change is the ultimate reality. Famously said, you never step into the same stream twice. Life goes by us, things change. Change is the ultimate thing that holds everything else together. So the logos came to mean that principle of continuity to which all change must adhere. Well then, Plato and Aristotle downplayed that and said that argument doesn't get us anywhere. Socrates famously said, what is good? What is real? And we still come to that, don't we? What is the ultimate reality? And what we have to share with our world is the ultimate reality in Christ Jesus. And what John says that Logos is, that ultimate reality is God. God creator, God sustainer, God redeemer, God who dwells within us by his spirit. He has come in the flesh. Now we have a choice, logos or chaos. We can have order or we can have disarray. And so the Stoics and other philosophers were still wrestling with this. this they lived in this dualism where they had separated the physical from the metaphysical, the physical from the spiritual. I'm wondering if today we've kind of circled back to the same kind of Stoic philosophy, that what we do in the physical body doesn't matter as long as our spirits remain pure. But John's addition to the gospel story is that God came in the flesh and was erected in the flesh. And we recognize the impact of that. He says the ultimate reality has come in the flesh and is both revealed to us and made available to us God's glory. So John rehearses his own experience with Jesus. He remembers the baptism. When he heard the voice of God say, this is my son, in him I am pleased. He saw the figure of the dove alighting on Jesus. He knows that he knows that this is the son of God who has come among us. John thinks about his own calling when Jesus came to his brother and he and their fishing boat and their fishing partners, Peter and Andrew, and said, come, follow me. And they became disciples and followed him and they learned from Jesus and saw his miracles and saw the healings and all the things that were happening. He was there at the cross, there at the resurrection, there at the ascension. John says, we have beheld his glory. And he wants us to behold that glory, to understand that glory, that we might understand our value. He did all that for you. He did all that for me, John says. He was called the disciple that Jesus loved. You remember from the cross, Jesus entrusted Mary's care to John. Her own children were not believers at that point. 
Later we know James, Jude, different ones entered in the family of God. But John took seriously the care of Mary in Jerusalem and later in Ephesus for all of her days. We recognize that he knew who Jesus was. And so he adds to the other gospel accounts decades after the others were written. And the Greeks would have read along the first part of the prologue. In the beginning was the Word, and the Logos was with God, the Logos was God, and they'd, they'd kind of be nodding their heads with that. And when things got a little more personal further down, they might still be okay with it. They may have hesitated a little bit at verse 10. He was in the world, and through, though the world was made through him, the world didn't recognize him. But then at verse 14, they said, that's it, that's it. We can't, we can't abide this. The Logos became flesh. The word flesh, sarks, the whole body, soul, and spirit. This is the bombshell. And John reinforces it when he writes over in 1 John. This is what he starts with. That which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our own eyes, which we have looked at and our hands have touched, this we proclaim concerning the word of life. The life appeared. We have seen it and testify to it. And we proclaim to you the eternal life, which was with the Father and has appeared to us. We proclaim to you that we have seen and heard so that you may have fellowship with us. And our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. We write this to make our joy complete. It's just, John just reinforcing to the Greeks, God has come in the flesh. The power of creation, the one constant, is the ultimate reality walking among us. The fullness of the Godhead dwells in him. In Hebrews, it says he's the radiance of God's glory, the exact representation of his being. We know the answer to <laughs> show the Father. If you've seen me, you've seen the Father. He has come among us. Not something to philosophize about, but someone to meet. And so we have this intimate connection. The next word in, in 14, after this logos, is sarx, this all that is physical. Humanity is now complete. Because Jesus didn't come just disguised in humanity. He took on our humanity. He retains that humanity. It's real. It's permanent. After his resurrection, he still said, come and touch the nail marks in my hands. But everything's changed. Now he's vanishing from their sight and appearing through walls when doors are locked and vanishing from them, eating with them on the beach and all these things that are part of this new body that we look forward to. Whenever a friend passes, a phrase comes to my mind that a pastor said to me when I was a child. Well, now they know. Yesterday at 10 o'clock, now Doug knows. The word says, now we see through a glass darkly, but then face to face. Now we know in part, but then we will know fully, even as we are fully known. <laughs> it's amazing. He brought his divinity with him. He limited himself for a time, but those limits were removed at the resurrection. And to think of Jesus' humanity as universal, that it's not defined by his nationality, his gender, his regional differences, Nothing in human condition is foreign to Jesus. Though he was a dark-skinned male of the Jewish persuasion in the first century, he is one with all of us, and our lives are one with him. 
In Hebrews, it says he was tempted in every way, just as we are, yet without sin. And we think of all kinds of modern temptations. Oh, Jesus was never tempted in that way or this way. But think in categories in that confrontation with Satan in the wilderness. After 40 days of fasting, Satan's first word, Jesus has just come from the baptism, the most affirming moment, when the voice of God says, this is my beloved son, listen to him. When the Spirit has alighted on him, compelled into the wilderness for those 40 days, Satan's first word is, if. <laughs> Plant the seed of doubt, if you are the Son of God. And he starts with the physical, and so often Satan starts with the physical temptations. And no matter what you think is the most difficult physical temptation to face, bread after 40 days of fasting would be at the top of the list. The physical temptations. Turn the stone into bread. And Jesus answers with the word. We shall not live by bread alone, but every word that comes from the mouth of God. And then Satan comes with the intellectual temptation. Testing God's word. Now it says in your father's word, he'll protect you. He won't let you dash your foot against a stone. Go to the pinnacle of the temple where everybody will see you. Jump off and let the angels come and scoop you up. Then let's see if they believe. Give them a spectacle. God had tried spectacle all through the Old Testament, hadn't he? Jewish people just kept forgetting the spectacle and started doubting again. Jesus said, don't tempt the Lord your God. Then he comes with a spiritual temptation, which is always buried in fine print. He showed him all the kingdoms of the world. I'll give you all this. This is the realm that your father gave me when he cast me out. I'll give it to you. Isn't that what you came to do? Save the world, I'll show you a shortcut. You don't have to suffer. All you have to do is bow down and worship me. <laughs> bow down and worship him. And that's where Satan wants us. <laughs> Tempted in every way, just as we are, yet without sin. Well, back to verse 14. Logos has become specific to John and to us. He lived for a while among us. Tented among us, the word says. And it's so specific. We've been through this all through Advent, haven't we? Herod was the king. Augustus was the Caesar in Rome. Quirinius was governor of Syria. The location was Bethlehem. Mary was his mother. Joseph, his earthly father. All the details are here. The Logos not is a principle, but a person. Not an abstract, but specific in place and time. And we have the birth narratives, and then we have the, the infancy, growing up years in poverty. Shed real tears, shed real blood. The two times we hear of Jesus weeping is over Lazarus' tomb, when he sees the heartache that sin and death brings. And over Jerusalem, where he sees the heartache that disobedience brings. God still weeps over those things. But they're temporary things. And he is eternal. He was sealed up in a borrowed tomb. He wasn't going to use it for long, so that was a good deal. And he raised. That which was an offense to John's audience became the greatest miracle and the greatest mystery. It's anonymous writing called The Mystery of of incarnation. 
He who is the Almighty became a suckling baby. He who is all-wise took on the dumbness of a newborn. He whom the heavens cannot contain was enclosed in a woman's womb. He before whom the seraphim continually cried, Holy, 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 was born of a sinner into a world under the dominion of sin. He who was unchanging went through nine months of constant change. He who was all-knowing had to communicate through a baby's cry. He who was infinite became but a microscopic cell. He who is love was born outside of a hotel because no one had room for his laboring mother. He who is the creator became a creature. He who has always been spirit took on the awkwardness of a human body. He who is eternal allowed himself to be bound by time. He who is light was entombed for nine months in the warm blackness. And he who is just was accused of being an illegitimate child. He who is sovereign God became dependent on a human man and woman for his food and clothing. He who is clothed with majesty was born in a cattle trough. He who alone is self-sufficient had to be cleaned and nursed. He who is life was born with a death warrant over his head. Can there be a greater mystery? Can there be a greater miracle? The infinite omniscient took a name, and the name is Jesus. Emmanuel, God with us. And God with us is where we find everything that we need to know about self-esteem. Here in that declaration, we find our direction. Here in that declaration, we find our eternal home. We find God's glory. We find who we are in Christ. And so take the joy of incarnation into this new year, this shining forth of epiphany, and let it shine from us, through us, to a world in darkness. Be amazed at his glory. Father, we come before you, and we don't want to get over this. It's not meant to be forgotten. It is meant to be lived. And so we recognize your peace today, and we want to live in that peace and dwell there. As you came and tented among us, we are here, your representatives living in the midst of the world that you created, a world that you agonize over, a world for which you weep, a world for which you died. May we live as your servants. In the name of Christ. Amen. Ephesians 1, 18. I pray also that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened in order that you may know and hope. The hope to which you were called, the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints and his incomparably great power to us who believe.